It is a great privilege to be with you here this morning, and uh, to be honest with you, brothers, to tomorrow, I believe it is, I'm going to be preaching in the main session, but I would forego that privilege of preaching in the main session if I had to make a choice between that meeting and this one. I love seeing everything that's going on here. All these men praising God and men who are dedicated to the word. But there's a world out there. That does not know Jesus Christ. Not here only in the United States, but on every continent of this globe. There are people. That are not within the reach of gospel proclamation. If God desired to save a man in the United States, he could direct that man to even some radio program where the gospel is being preached. But there are billions of people who are outside the reach of the proclamation of the gospel. And I want you to know something. It's your responsibility. I have a deep an abiding respect for pastors. The more I grow, the older I get, I have a greater and greater respect for pastors. Pastors do the invisible work. Pastors do the work that is not applauded in a conference. Pastors are getting up early and going to bed late, taking care of their sheep. They have great burdens, great trials, and many times little reward. I understand that. I understand it. And I understand that you may be here today. Struggling. With a small flock. Burdened about things that are going on. Even right now as you sit here in the conference. Things that may be going on in your church. I understand that. But brothers. In spite of all that. It does not give us an excuse. To step back from the Great Commission. It does not. This is our task as men of God. To work and work and labor until the master calls us home. And to look not only to our sheep. Not only to the people in our own congregation. And not only to our lost neighborhoods. But we are called upon to look out to the world. And to actually involve ourselves. Part of our sacrifice in the ministry should have to do with those in lands where the gospel is not preached. I want us to turn for just a moment to Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I absolutely so appreciate this passage. We are looking at 11 men who we can honestly say conquered the Roman Empire. 11 men who changed the world. 11 men that... for for right now, have a legacy of 2,000 years. Over 2,000 years, the world has been impacted by them. And yet we see them here. 
drawing near to the Christ with excitement, with exhilaration, in obedience, and yet at the same time we see that they are men just like us. They're struggling with doubt. They're fighting back fears. They're thinking, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our families? What is this going to cost? What does it mean? They were just like us. And yet, these men, most of them dying as martyrs, most of them the world would say they were abject failures, and yet we know today that God used them to overcome the Roman Empire and bring the gospel to the whole known world. They were men like us. But they did such great things. Why? Because they have a God like ours. We see all around us the fall of the West. Really, honestly. It's not an exaggeration. When you see the sins of Romans 1... In a culture, in a society, it does not mean that God is going to judge that nation or that society. It means that He already has. He's already declared judgment and turned them over to the lusts of their own depraved hearts. And as men, we can sit back and we can, we can recede, we can yield, we can take a remnant kind of theology and say, we're the only ones left, let's hold the fort. You're not called to hold the fort. You're called to advance. The world we live in right now, here in the United States of America, it's still not difficult. If you think this is difficult, you do not understand church history. We still have it easier than any generation of Christians that ever lived on the planet. And for us to talk about darkness and fear and hide in our homes and hope in some political resolution, we're not being Christian. We are called to advance. And the darker the world gets, the greater our light. And if we move into a time where we have the persecution of the first century, well then congratulations, we now have the opportunity to live like first century Christians. There is no defeat. There is only victory if we are faithful to the task at hand, to do what God has commanded us to do and to do it God's way, not ours. Look what we have here in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does this mean? It means all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And what does that mean? You and I have no excuse. We have no excuse for our doubts. We have no excuse for our fears. We have no excuse to hide behind something in order to protect ourselves. We have no excuse not to risk. My wife is always saying, she says, these Calvinistic friends of yours, they only believe God is sovereign with regard to salvation and nothing else. Because it's obvious because they won't risk. They won't trust Him. Missionary comes to a church of 500 people, pours out his heart about what God's doing on some strange island far away, and they all risk with mighty faith and hand him $50. Men, we live in a time where we, in the power of God and the grace of God, can rise up and do great things. This is not a time 
for men of small hearts and tight spirits and narrow shoulders. This is a time for men to trust God and to take it on. In ourselves we can do nothing, nothing. But in this statement that all authority has been given unto him in heaven and on earth, in this we can rise up and say, bring on the lions. Bring them on. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go. 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 Craig Blomberg in his commentary on Matthew, wonderful commentary. He says this, the word go down through church history has been given in some cases too much emphasis and in other cases too little. What does he mean by that? In the case of the word being given too much emphasis, we have people and churches and pastors who say, the world is so needy, we just need to send people. Doesn't matter if they qualify, doesn't matter if they're trained, let's just get them out, get them out, get them out. We got to get people out there. Some missionary half trained is better than no missionary at all. That's not true. Half trained missionaries have done more damage to the work of the kingdom than you could ever imagine. So it's not just go. But then on the other hand, there's another group of people that say, well, you know, this is not the imperative in the text. The imperative is make disciples. And so we'll make disciples and they forget about go. They just think, well, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. And that's wrong, too. Pastor, I know you've got so much to carry. But by the authority of God's word, I'm going to put one more thing on you. You're to look out into the fields, not just the fields of your neighborhood, but you're to look out into the fields, the places where there still needs someone to go. You're to look there. You're to pray for that. You're to ask, Lord, what can I do? And you're to inform your church. One of the most terrifying realities of the ministry is that your church, sooner or later, if you stay there long enough, is going to imitate you. You can talk, preach about evangelism all day long, but if you're not evangelistic, your church won't be evangelistic. You can talk about missions all day long, but if you as a man is not risking your life and finances and everything else for missions, then your church isn't either. I know a church that when it was under a certain pastor down in southern Georgia, an independent Baptist fundamentalist church, they had about less than 100 people, less than 100 people, no doctors, no lawyers, blue collar. And they, on the average, gave $200,000 a year to missions. And the pastor in, in that beautiful Georgian, Georgia accent of his, he'd say, Brother Paul, I just discovered this. You take care of missions, God will take care of you. And that's what I've taught my people and they believe it. When it says go, it divides the Great Commission into two things. One, you're either to go or you're to train and send those who do go. That's how Great Commission lines up. Either way, it requires the same devotion. 
If you have been called to be a pastor here in the United States, praise God for you. I believe it's the highest calling there is, is to be a pastor. Then you are called still to the Great Commission. If you are not called to go, you are called to train and you're called to send either directly through your own church or through something the Lord has raised up and through which your church might work. You are called to be involved. Now, he says here, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course, we don't have time to go through all of this. But here's what I want you to see. From this, we understand that missions is a theological and doctoral, doctrinal endeavor. It is. It is didactic. Missions is not about sending missionaries. Missions is about sending God's truth through missionaries. There is more missionary activity in the world today than there has ever been. And most of it is a mess. One of the greatest things that could happen on the mission field is to call most of the missionaries home. Now I know that sounds horrid what I'm saying. It sounds arrogant. But it is true. It is true. There are such travesties going on. Horrible things that are happening around the world in missions. Missionaries going out from supposed conservative missionary organizations that are teaching people that they can be Muslim and Christian at the same time. That Yahweh and Allah is the same God. Missionaries that are going out and teaching all the things that has destroyed the church in America. I remember when I was in seminary and I realized that I was not in a solid one. That I was being taught all the German theology that closed all the churches in Germany. In many ways, the same things are going on now. All the things that we heard about yesterday that's wrong with the church in America, it's being spread abroad. And what can we do? What can we do? To fix the problem. It's to simply obey what God has written in the scriptures. Now I'm going to talk to you about missions for just a second. And I'm going to explain to you some things. Of how simple missions actually is. Let me read you this. In the New Testament, missions is church planting. The primary goal of missions is to plant a biblical church. It is that. All you have to do is study the life of the Apostle Paul and those co-laborers who were with him and you will see he had one priority. The ultimate goal was to plant a biblical, autonomous, local church. Now, in the New Testament, missions is church planting. Now, here's the question. How do you plant a church? How do you plant a church? Well, here's the answer. The same way you pastor one. 
I have had it up to here. With every new fad coming down the pike about mission strategies, church planting, church growth, and all of it is just an excuse not to do the simple and difficult things that Jesus Christ commanded us. And what is that? How do you plant a church? You plant a church the same way you pastor a church. And how do you pastor a church? 2 Timothy 4, 5. You do the work of an evangelist. You do the work of an evangelist. And then what do you do? You pastor and disciple those men who are converted. Those people who are converted. You disciple them all. You preach to them all. You pastor them all. So you do the work of an evangelist. Those who are converted, you pastor them, which includes, of course, teaching and discipling them. And then what do you do? You set your sights on faithful men and train them to be elders. I want you to look for just a minute. Look over at 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, this text has been used for the last several decades as the theological basis for discipling people. That, you know, if you're converted, you need to start discipling other people. And the multiplication of disciples. That's not what this text is talking about. We ought to disciple, yes, every new convert, we ought to disciple them. We ought to preach to them. We ought to pastor them. But that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about raising up and training elders. That's what he's saying. He's not saying invest your life in a 14-year-old boy who's been converted, even though we should do that. He's talking about raising up Men who can be elders in that local church and then some of them being sent out to do what? To do the work of an evangelist? To pastor and disciple those who have been converted? And among that group, to pray for and discover men whom God is raising up to be elders? To do what? So they can help pastor the church and for some of them to be sent out to do what? To do the work of an evangelist. That's missions. Why doesn't why isn't this at the forefront? Because it's not fancy. It's not clever. It cannot be done in the flesh. It's hard. It requires the study of Scripture for hours a day and the proclamation of that Scripture. It requires bloody knees. It requires the death of the flesh. And it means you probably won't become famous. This is the work of missions. Now, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 1 through 7, we have what's known as the qualification of elders, don't we? 
Or do we? I've heard people say, well, yes, these are the qualifications of an elder, but I'm a missionary. I don't have to have these qualifications. Really? I'm not going to be an elder. I'm going to be a missionary. Oh, you're going to start the church that's going to be the root for all the other churches in that people group, and you don't need to have these qualifications. These are not the qualifications of an elder. Primarily. What is Paul actually saying here? He's saying... The, this is a description of a mature Christian. And the elder, that man who has a desire and shows a desire to pastor God's people, that's wonderful, but he can't start until these qualifications are found in him in growing measure. So it's not just training men. In theology, but training them in character. And it's not just elders. My, the two elders of my church are here today. We have a thing in our church, and our church and heart cry have a very important conviction. When someone says, I want to be a missionary, our question is this to that person's elders Can this person be an elder in your church? Would you make this person an elder in your church to pastor your people? And if the answer is no, they're not going to be a missionary. Now, do you think that's strange? That's biblical. That's biblical. You see that? Now, let me throw a question at you. This is going to be my last question just to get you thinking. If I ask you what is a pastor, you can go to the scriptures, can't you? And you can show me what a pastor is. And, and when someone doesn't meet up to those biblical standards, you can say, well, this guy's a mover and a shaker. Maybe he's a spiritual life coach. Something, but he's not a pastor. Because the Bible says a pastor does this. You know what the problem is? Define what a missionary is for me. Define what a missionary is. There's our big problem, isn't it? Missionary is anything. Anybody who wants to go to the field, and, I'm, and please don't laugh because I'm not making fun of this, but if someone wants to go with a puppet ministry, they're a missionary. Or you send uh, 15 of your youth group you spend $80,000 to send them to a foreign land for two weeks where they go around not really accomplishing hardly anything. And they come back with all kinds of stories. That's not missions. What is a missionary? I mean, really? It, 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 now think about this. The Great Commission is the enterprise. It's the endeavor. It's what the church is called to accomplish. And we can't even define what a missionary is. It means anything. Isn't that amazing? Maybe that's the reason why we're having so much trouble today. We don't even know what a missionary is. Now, I don't want to scare you or anything, but the word missionary comes from the Latin verb miteri. You know what it means? To send 
The Greek word apostelo, to send, from which we get the word apostle. So what am I saying? Are there apostles today? No. But in a way, yes. In a very, very different way. Be careful. There were a group of apostles sent out by the Lord. They saw the Lord. They saw Him. They did. That's not happening today. I'm just to inform you. It's like a, a, a man told one of my dear friends who's in the pastorate that he was shaving and the Lord appeared to him. And my friend said, well, did you stop shaving? Because if you didn't, it wasn't the Lord. But that's the word we use. When we say missionary, we're saying, we're saying sent one. And I believe that there is some relationship, but we have to be very, very careful. Those original apostles were sent out by the direct authority of Jesus Christ. When we get to Acts 13, they're sent out by the authority of the local church. The local church has recognized their calling and the local church has laid its hands upon those missionaries. The original apostles, they received direct revelation from the Lord and they went out proclaiming that revelation that they received. The missionary today doesn't do that. If you find one that is, don't support him. What does the missionary do today? He takes that revelation of the apostles that has been recorded and he proclaims it. So what, do we, what is a missionary? A missionary is a man who has been called by God and has the desire to go out into the work of missions. He is a person that through the grace of God and the diligent study of Scripture has now met the requirements of a true minister of Christ as set before us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He is a person upon whom the church can lay its hands and say, yes, we send this person out under the authority that we have as a local church and to be watched over and cared for us theologically, morally, ethically, every way, shape, form, or fashion. And then he goes out. This is primarily what a missionary is. He goes out and he does the work of an evangelist. I'm so tired of all these people who think that if they can make their service cool enough or attractive enough, people will come. That's not what the Bible says. You go out and do the work of an evangelist. You preach the gospel in the markets. You go door to door. You witness for Christ. And those people who are converted, you pastor them, disciple them, and you do what? You start looking for men to train immediately. And not necessarily you're looking to start a training ministry. You're looking for a person to train. It may not have any title to it. It may not develop into a seminary one day. But you are doing the work of a man training men. And then as a missionary, you either decide, God has called me to pastor this people now for the rest of my life. Or in raising up these men, you turn the work over to them and you go plant another church. You say, Brother Paul, but 
What about me? I want to be a missionary and I don't do any of that. Then what do you do? I believe along with that missionary can be sent out people who help that missionary. Paul had fellow laborers. There can be evangelists to go along with them. There can be other people to assist him. But what you've got to realize is the main, the main character of missions is the theologian preacher who goes out and proclaims the word of God. And I would suggest to you that the majority of missionaries, the great majority of missionaries on the field do not fit this description. They are not doing this. Now, I'm going to stop. And I want to talk to you about something that I have the freedom to talk about because it's not my ministry. It has nothing to do with me. I don't flatter, all right? I've proven that with my life. You can't buy me. I'm not here to impress anybody. No one. Not even the leaders of this church. So what I'm going to tell you, I'm telling you because before God, it's my conviction. We support indigenous missionaries around the world. And we praise God for those American missionaries out there that are truly missionaries. But I want to tell you what I think is, at least in my mind, the most biblical, most important thing going on in missions today. And I'm not lying to you. It's what's happening through TMAI. And I think, and I'm going to tell you this straight up, okay? I think if you're a pastor, and you've got the means to train men and send them out into a foreign land, you do that. But if there's something left over, or if you don't have the means and you're not doing that right now, I'm going to tell you, as a person who's been in missions for 30 years, that I would that all of you would join what's happening here. Now, my lips trembling, but I'm just straight up. What is TMI doing? Do you like what you see here? Did you enjoy the sermons yesterday? Did they feed you? The things that you heard and saw and their strategy of church planting and preaching. Did you enjoy this? Is that why you're here, isn't it? Because you really appreciate this, right? That's why I'm here. TMI is seeking to do this, and not just seeking, is accomplishing it. To do what you see here all over the world. They are. While everyone else is running around, just fluff, I mean, crazy, insane strategies and everything else. I have visited the areas where TMAI work, and here's what they're doing. A man is trained here, or a few men are trained here from a certain country. Let's use Samar for, as an example. They're trained here. They're trained in, in, in exegesis, hermeneutics, homiletics, 
systematic theology, systematic ethics, so that they learn to think in a non-contradictory manner. They're trained in church history, which is one of the great things missing in missions today. I could do a whole lecture on that. And they're training them so hard that the boys feel like, gosh, the tribulation has risen. It's three years of study here. It's three years of tribulation. This is it. But when they get through this, this, in some ways, trial of fire, they don't make it easy here. Then they've got the, some of the best tools that any person could have in their hands. And they go to their country. And they don't go start some kind of training institute outside of the local church. What do they do? Start either, they either plant a local church or they work with a local church that either wants to be reformed biblically or is already there. And they start training men. And what do they train them in? The same thing they got here. See, in a lot of ways, there's racism, I think, in missions. Yeah, the American. What's he need? Yeah, let's give him Greek, Hebrew, this, that, church history. Well, let's go over there to Africa or South America. You know, if we can just get him to read, it'll be good. Now, I know that's no one's attitude, but if you look at the way education goes on, theological education, let's dumb it down. That's disgusting. Not only, not only is it disgusting with regard to the person, it's disgusting with regard to the God who made them. Some of the greatest theologians right now on this planet and maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest preacher, lives in Zambia. But when TMAI starts an institute, it's like, okay, boys, get ready. We're bringing the tribulation to your country. I can always tell a TMAI student, he walks around like this. And so you go to Samara. Are there other places here? There's a lot of other places around Europe, New Zealand, different places. You, I'm sitting there preaching in Russia and I look and on the front row the students have their New Testament, Greek New Testaments out. Following me. They're, they're, I can't find hardly any place in the, in the third world or anywhere outside the United States where I can go where they're being trained in real biblical counseling. See, first of all, it was Christian counseling. Then people said biblical counseling. But now everybody claims to have biblical counseling, so you have to go real biblical counseling. <laughs> I don't know what the next adjective is going to have to be. Maybe really, really biblical counseling. No, really, no fooling biblical counseling. But I can sit there. I could send, if my son was called, one of my sons was called into the ministry, I could actually send them to Samara. And they would get a better education. And when I mean education, a spiritual training than they would in most places in the United States. And, and what I'm saying, pastors, listen to me. For example, uh, and, I, and I'm going to stop here so that we can do some questions, but let me give you an example. Sometimes people will come and they say, you know, why does Heart Cry only have something like, I don't know, 240 missionary families and did we support indigenous missionaries? 
Why do we only have that many missionaries on the field? Why don't we have more? It's not because of a lack of funds or a lack of faith. Jesus never said the harvest is great and the money is few. He said the harvest is great and the labors are few. And so people will say, well, come work in this country. And we go, is there a biblical church with biblical elders training men that can be sent out and that can be held accountable theologically and ethically? No, then we can't. And that's why a few years ago, we began to work in a small relationship, but a wonderful relationship with TMAI. If they call me from Samara today and they say, we've got a missionary ready to go out, we don't have to go to Samara. We don't have to investigate. And then we don't have to sit there and go, okay, we've got to get somebody over there, you know, every month to make sure this guy really is doing what he's doing. We don't. Why? Because he's been trained at Samara. He's being held accountable by those men, the local church and everything else being watched over. So it's a wonderful thing. And in other places in the world, it's the same same way in places in Europe, all over. And that's what I'm saying. Men, we need more North American missionaries than ever. But at the same time, this thing of working with indigenous peoples is absolutely fantastic. But the problem has always been, yeah, we know, but but what do we you know, how can we be sure they're trained? How can we be sure that they're really doing the job that they're working? They're doing everything they say in their letters. That's always been the problem, hasn't it? That's also the problem with North American missionaries, too. But when they're sent out from a local church in that country, a local church that has biblical elders, a biblical training program that is united with this church here. Then it's like, wow, now we can do something. And that's what I want to encourage you. And again, I can do this because it's not my ministry. It's what I believe in. TMAI could grow a lot more. They have the men. They have the integrity. It could grow a lot more. Whether it's starting up institutes, whether it's helping to train men, whether it's uh, funds to bring young men here who want to be here but don't have the funds to study, or whether it's um, um, helping the teachers, the indigenous teachers that have been trained here to go back and teach all over the world. That's something that you men can do. Your churches can do. So billions of dollars are spent in missions today, brothers, and it's wasted. It's wasted. Where are you going to find a group who says, okay, this is what we do. We do the work of an evangelist. We pastor the people who are converted. We train those men we send them out, we hold them accountable. Where? And all of you can be a part of that. You know finally that there's some place where you could actually direct your people to invest their funds without having to worry about on the day of judgment, what's this going to mean for me? Did I waste God's resources and the resources of God's people? The thing about it is, this work that you will be a part of isn't glamorous, isn't fancy. It's just hard and right.
And as someone who's been in missions for three decades, I know I only look like I'm 25, but honestly, <laughs> three decades. I, I, can, I can tell you that I sleep at night with regard to all the men that we help support through TMAI. I sleep at night. Now, brother, come on up and we'll... Any questions? Thank you, Paul. Amen, amen. Well, you've set the bar biblically for us what missions is. Thank you for that. And the need for that is essential today. We have a problem in missions. There's no question about it, and you've referred to that. Uh, I want to begin, first of all, just to take you back to your own missionary experience on the field. Tell us more what you saw with regard to the needs that pastors face, and also what did you see on the field with regard to American missionaries that were, were making it more difficult or actually right. compromising the work of the yeah. church? First of all, and TMAI would agree with me totally, there are North American and European missionaries on the field, missionaries from the West that are worth their weight in gold. We all recognize that. But there are some really godly missionaries out there, and we want to affirm that, and we want to affirm also that, that more North American missionaries go forth Yes, so much. Yet at the same time, what, what, brothers, what you have to realize, when you go to a lot of seminaries, what do you see? At least in my experience, you see kind of a division. Um, the, the, the guys who are going to be professors one day, study Greek and Hebrew and church history and systematic and all this, you'll have some guys who, who are in the pastorate who do those things, but most of the pastorate guys go towards ministry classes how to do ministry. And then the missionary guys, they go toward how to do missions, mission theories, church planting, church growth, global strategy, and all these things. And so what you have is the men going to the pastorate here, a lot of times in the United States, are trained in strategies. And that, that's, that's totally wrong. We're not, we're not marketers. We're prophets. We're preachers. But it's the same way on the mission field. You go to the mission field, and I mean, every, it seems like every other person's coming with the new fad in missions, the new strategy in missions. So I was in Indonesia a few years ago and walked up to a man who I was told that he was converted, and I said, so you've become a Christian. He goes, Muslim Christian. I said, well, which one? I walked up to the missionary who was supposedly part of that, and I said, so tell me how many people have been converted? And he said, well, before you talk to me about missions, you're going to have to drop your Western language. I said, son, it's biblical language, and it's not going to get dropped. How many people have you seen converted? He said, no one. I said, I thought so. All right, so we have all these strategies. Then all these dear young people, who go to a missions conference, and I love them. They get all fired up, and they're told, you go to the mission field, and I'm going, no. I was at a really big mission conference a few years ago, and man, they were preaching on missions, and I was there at a table, and young people were coming to me, I'm going to the field, and I said, please don't. Don't go to the field. Everybody was mad at me. I said, look, I'm going to give you five minutes. Explain to me the doctrine of propitiation. And they're going, I said, 
It's like a young man called me one time and he said, Mr. Washer, I want to go to Peru so bad. I said, really, why? I just want to give my life to the Peruvians. I just want to give my life away. And I said, how are you in, in, in your theology? Well, that's really not my gift. I just want to give my life away. I said, how are you in intercessory prayer? Well, you know, I struggle in that area, but I just want to give my life away. I said, young man, nobody needs your life here in Peru. They need someone who can open up their mouth and tell them truth about God. And, and that's what we're fighting against. And, and that's why I love what's being done in TMAI. I just love it. Why? Because the, it's almost like just, we're just doing what the Bible said. Training men to preach, to train men to preach, to train men to preach. Look what it says. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not an interpretive dance. Preaching. You're putting your finger on something that we need to understand. American pragmatism is what defines missions today. Right. And that's a man-centered approach mm -hmm. to advancing the kingdom. That's a theological issue. Yeah. I know you've seen that in a number mm -hmm. of places. And uh, if you could comment on that idea yeah. of the theological core that informs our approach. When Jesus said, go out and teach them, that tells us that missions is didactic. That it's theological. Now here's what most missionary organizations do. And, and this, is, this is just true. Um, they reduce their doctrinal statement down to the lowest common denominator with anyone who calls themselves Christian. So that they can bring in as many laborers as possible. And they're sincere. They're not, they're not bad people. They're sincere to bring in as many laborers as possible and as many supporters as possible. But here's my question. How can you send out a missionary team of four men when all four men have, well, three of them have differing views of ecclesiology and one of them doesn't even know what the word means? So how do you do that? Or one of them is, has this view of soteriology and the other one has another view? You know, what we have done is we have, throughout the world, we have, we have people now worshiping an undefined Christ. And brothers, there's nothing more dangerous than doing that. It's theological. It is theological. Do you see that? I'm going to tell them about God. Another thing that's happened is we have reduced the gospel. And, and here's what's happened. It's taken generations, but this is what's happened. If you go back and read Spurgeon, Flavel, Bunyan, all, all the men, the reformers, everything, you see a gospel so majestic and powerful, an explanation of Calvary to such a degree that you want to fall down and worship. We've reduced that down to four spiritual laws, five things God wants you to know and repeat this prayer. All right. So as we've reduced the gospel, the power of the gospel has been lost. So these men seeing that the gospel, their gospel, has no power, they must go to all the other gimmicks. So we need men who know the gospel, because only men who know the gospel can believe in its power. You see, because of our view of the gospel, when we stand out in a pulpit, we are Ezekiel in a valley of dead bones. We know that nothing's going to happen here apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that God has promised most to do that through a pure doctrine being preached.
preached. And so we preach the gospel and we believe that men will be raised from the dead. That's missions. That's what we need. That's what we must have on the mission field. But they must know the gospel. What we're alluding to here is really the core challenge, and, and I'm going to say it this way, the core problem in missions today is the North American church, what we're exporting. And that's what we're hearing Paul affirm here. Uh, I was sharing with the men on, on Tuesday at our pre-conference event, you need to understand mission organizations to get more people on the field do exactly what Paul said. They may have a doctrinal statement that you could read and say that you agree with, but you don't understand they're not necessarily asking their missionaries to agree with their doctrinal statement. Some say, yes, you must agree, but some say just affirm the doctrinal statement. And you're sending people out to the field, good people, only to join a team, as Paul illustrated, where there's no agreement to plant a church. The chaos that that leads to, I was reading one statistic uh, a few years ago that studied evangelical missions today, and it said that 70% of missionaries never returned to the field for a second term. And when you calculate the investment, it was well over half a billion dollars the North American church was investing in that one statistic. We are accountable. The American church is accountable for what we're doing in missions. Here's my question for you. If that's true, then what's the role and responsibility of pastors here in the U.S. to understand their duty to lead their churches to advance biblical missions. If you're a pastor, you know, R.C. Sproul has a book that we're all theologians. Well, especially if we're pastors, you must be a pastor theologian. You must, you must believe these things, that truth, that doctrine, that definition is important, and you must teach your people. And then, depending on the providence of God, how God is working in your life and in your ministry and in your church, you must involve your people in missions. You must explain to them what missions, what it is, and then you must involve them. And how do you involve them? If you have young men that are being raised up or even older men that are being called into the field, you help train them and you get them also to places that can assist you with the training. But another thing that you can do immediately, that you can do immediately. Brothers, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. You can participate in this ministry. You can participate in this ministry. Your church, if, if the men who are pastors in this room right now led their church to get involved with TMAI financially within a year, it could change things dramatically. If I could have these seminaries, these institutes all over the world, and again, it's not my ministry, it would be absolutely wonderful. And then we come along and in different places, according to our means, when these men are coming out and graduating and they're recommended by the local church, then Heart Cry steps in and starts supporting them. But here's the thing. You don't need to give money to heart cry. And here's why. We, we can't do anything unless these guys are doing something. Training these men. There's a lack of laborers. There's a lack of laborers. They're training men. They're training men. They're training men with everything that, that you love about this conference. 
And so I just want to plead with you to consider this. And also, if you're a pastor, theologian who loves the word. You need to start taking mission trips. You do. And here's, you know, you send your young people who they 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 run. They, it cost 80,000 to send 20 of them to a foreign field and they run around for a week and a half. They don't you don't need to do that. You need your church needs to send you. And you need to sit with 12 people in Nepal or Russia, pastors who are sponges and starving to death and just sit there with them and teach them or conferences or help. There's so much you just get in touch with these men, say, what can we do? What can we do to help you do your work? And, and look. Here, here are some of my sermons. Here's my church. Look at it. I'm a pastor. I love the word. Is it true that I could go over and just pour myself into 25 men for two weeks? Is that true? Could I do something like that? You're the one, pastor. And your church can get behind sending you. And then you come back and you say, yes, what I saw with my own eyes. Not even half the story has been told. We need to do this. I've seen pastors go to with us, with TMAI, come back and they're just glowing. They're wore out, but they're sitting there going in America. I labored 20 hours on a sermon and sometimes people just yawn. Those men were on the edge of their seats just to learn the smallest thing. So this is a great opportunity, great opportunity. Oh, let me let me say this. I got to say this. This is a story that happened. This will tell you the state of missions. I got on a plane, I think it was in Bucharest or something, and I'm half dead and I'm sitting there, you know, coming back from a conference. And I'm sitting beside this guy and I look and he's got these statistics and stuff. So I'm like, so what do you do? He goes, I'm a mission strategist. Really? I said, uh, so what's going on in the world? He started listing all the oh, success, man. God's moving. I said, that's wonderful. I said, tell me about it. He said, yeah. He started labeling pre- people groups that I knew. People groups, some of them I personally knew. And he's going, this group's been reached. This group's been reached. This group's been reached. And finally, I said, hey, pull back the reins on this a little bit. Let me ask you a few questions. What is your definition of a reached people group? He said, if someone has lived within walking distance of where the Jesus film was shown. Enough said, right? Again, that pragmatism. And we've talked about this, Paul. Uh, It shows up in church planting, the rapid church planting movement. What Uh, is that about? It's about a bunch of silly little boys who shouldn't have got a PhD is what it's about. Um... Brother, listen to me. Listen to me. Missions is hard. Amy Carmichael said it was an opportunity to die. Brothers, this conference is wonderful. But this isn't. This isn't our daily life. My daily life is going home on Monday and working with monotonous plow horse step by step work. My pastors who are here, they're going to go home. They're going to face problems. It's hard. And you can't say, oh, you know, here we are, 21st century, and still this many people haven't been reached. we got to do something. Yeah, let's follow the Bible. No, we don't have any time for that. 
But that's been the problem for the last two centuries. We don't have time for it. At first, the church was attacked by liberalism. And that hurt missions. Now, it's conservative pragmatism that's killing the church worse than liberalism. To a greater degree than liberalism. Another example of this is uh, translation work. We can get every known language, uh, have a, a translation in every known language in our lifetime. Let's go. <laughs> We've been Let's talking go, about this. But let me tell you where to go. The, here's the problem. Listen to me. I, I saw a thing the other day they were bragging about. I think maybe Michael Chambers showed it to me. I don't know. But it, this was a, last year. I've worked a lot in South America, in the Andes and things like that, and it was how we are now, before it would take years to get a translation, but now we're going to crank out this translation of the New Testament in like six months because we're using indigenous translators. Wonderful. There's a group of, of literally Andean women, about seven of them, with no theological training or anything, in a circle, trying to make a translation. The translations we have in the world today, most of them need to be redone. Some of them are out and out heretical. You cannot preach expository messages out of many of the translations. Because what they've done is they've, again, it's racism. They look at the third world person and say, we need to explain this text to them. And they make it, it's not even a dynamic translation. It's not even a, a paraphrase. I don't know what to call it. You know, instead of saying, you know, literally what this means, it's something else that they can pull from the garden or the, the, the culture or the society or some whimsical phrase in a certain language. And there's no way you can exposit the text. Here's what we need to understand. Most translators are not theologians today. Yet all the great translations, Wycliffe, Tyndale, all those men, they were theologians. And they translated the scriptures literally in the context of the local church. Now, what do I mean by that? They knew that in that translation, they just needed to give a literal, clear translation because they believed that there was a local church that would have local pastors that would be trained in theology and hermeneutics and be able to explain the word of God to the people. That God works through preaching. That doesn't happen today. I know in one translation that was done by a man who, when, when the translators came in, he was converted from being a witch doctor. He helped him with the translation, and after the translation of the New Testament was done, he went back to being a witch doctor. And there's no concept of mercy or grace in the, in the whole text. And so, we need to understand these things. Translations need to be done all over the world so that men can actually exposit the Scriptures. And brothers, that's what... We got a meeting here in just, just a minute. To talk about translating, uh, translating the scriptures and how to do it. And, and that's what's going on here. And it's not just TMAI. It's, it's a couple different people and groups trying to work together, indigenous groups saying, look, we got to take this on, but we can't take it on pragmatically. We got to put our head down and just work and trust the scriptures in everything that we do. Not look at the time clock, just trust the scriptures. Well, and I can affirm that. In my own experience working with our men on the field, being in the room 
as men are being taught how to accurately interpret the scriptures, men who pastored for years, just sitting there and weeping, realizing that they've been preaching heresy and falsehood, uh, only to have a great joy of being gifted with uh, the training to actually accurately interpret the Word of God. But I've seen these men repent and ask God's for forgiveness. That's why the translation work is important. Our guys in the classroom sit with national pastors, and they bring their translations, and they help them actually look at the original languages and, and determine you know, what is uh, a good and accurate interpretation of the text. And so we're excited to join this endeavor uh, to look at what we can do by way of editing, revising uh, Bibles that have been translated. But you need to know what's happening at large. There's a movement of pragmatism that, again, in this regard, see, Americans define success as bigger and better, quicker and faster. And that has just penetrated the mentality uh, of missions, and we've been exporting that. So important. And, and Paul, thank you for your partnership in ministry. Uh, you've heard him uh, promote the ministry of TMAI from the heart. I'm grateful to you for that. But really, man, my heart's burden is that you understand your stewardship as pastors. Yes. You have got to stop delegating the responsibility for missions down the chain in your church to people who are uninformed and do not understand the state of missions today. Yes. Do not just quickly send people to the field. Make sure they're the right people. Make sure they're equipped, they're trained, that your church is walking with them, helping them making discerning choices. If you choose to partner with TMAI, we praise God, we need you. There's no question about that. The work uh, is exploding around the wor world. The demands are great. I've shared with the men, we have 43 countries, pastors who've asked us to come and help them train where we're not working already. We need your help. And if you're interested, we have a display in the back. Uh, we have a program we call our ambassador program where our guys and our staff will connect your church with a training center and we begin to cultivate that relationship. So we'd appreciate if you pray and seriously take uh, our invitation to join us uh, in this endeavor. Again, Brother Paul, thank you for your ministry today. And one of, just one other thing that I so appreciate again is this. The dignity of the indigenous missionary within the context of the training programs uh, at TMAI. That they're seeking to give to that sometimes third world missionary the same, the same instruction that a Stephen Lawson has benefited from that John MacArthur's benefited from. They're not trying to step it down. There's, a, there's an old saying, the, the samurai sword maker, there's one left in the world today of, of a true one. And he says this, I trained my disciple for 10 years. He must be a hair better than I am so that my craft improves. If he's one hair less than me, he's one hair less than me, then my craft will decrease. And then with his disciple, it will decrease. And then with his disciple, it will decrease. Our greatest theologians are yet to be found, and they're in the third world. J.I. Packard was asked one time, who's the greatest preacher alive? And he said, you don't know him. And the whole point is, he's out there somewhere preaching to six people. And, and that's what I so appreciate about TMAI. When I see those guys in, in Russia talking to me about biblical counseling, 
reading their New Testaments in Greek, talking about expository preaching. Man, you just don't see that anywhere, brothers. You just don't see it anywhere. But you see it with this ministry. So I, I beg you, at least take their information. Get on your knees and pray about it. Don't allow your mission program to be caught up in sentimentality, romanticism, or the pleading heart of someone. Do it biblically. Do it biblically. Lead your people into something biblical. Thank you.